Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Throughout his vast ministry, Mike Avery has been a pastor and evangelist, a denominational leader, as well as president of God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio. This sermon was preached at the Interchurch Holiness Convention in Dayton, Ohio in 1993, and it's titled, The Culture, The Christ, The Cross. I know you'll enjoy this wonderful message. Thank you so much, Brother Schmuel. He made reference to the fact that he's known uh, as many things. I've continued to tell Brother Schmuel he will, in my estimation, the greatest thing he will be known for is he has been a friend. He's been a friend to those who didn't grow up in the context of the holiness movement. He's reached out, he's took the risk, and he's reached out and he's brought them in. Those within that grew up within the holiness movement and became a little disillusioned with this movement, he was the one that took the risk and went after them and talked with them and brought many of them back. Brother Schmuel's been a friend. He's been my friend, and I thank God for him. It's certainly a privilege to speak at the IH convention. My boys, I was trying to explain to them what this meant, and I said, I suppose, fellas, this is the the, the biggest forum in the holiness movement. And they said, Daddy, are, are you nervous? You look a little nervous. I said, boys, no, I'm not nervous. I've gone completely beyond nervous. I am scared to death. And I, I, that expresses my sentiments, a great deal of fear. But what has consoled my fears, I've looked around me and I've seen so many of those of you that are my friends. You've said, I'm pulling for you, I'm praying for you. And then I got a great deal of consolation when over to my right, your left, on the very top, 10 of the finest Latin American young people in the world came in. They're from our Latin American Institute. They're godly young people, and I know they, they won't understand a lot I'm saying, but I know they're pulling for me, and they're praying for me. And you're going to get to hear them tomorrow afternoon. Brother Schmuel tipped me off that I would be speaking at this convention. And then Brother Sankey wrote me a letter and said, would you speak at the convention and on Tuesday night and you have an open, an open subject. You're not, give, be, you're not going to be given an assignment. It's just open. Preach what you will. I accepted that. And then the paper came out, the advertisement, and Brother Schmuel had placed a staggering topic. The culture, the Christ, the cross. Jack Hooker called me and he said, uh, what does that mean? And I said, I don't even know myself what that means. I said, but I'm going to give it my best. So while I was wrestling with that, I thought, well, I'll talk to the Lord about it and see what he says. And so I talked to the Lord about it and he said, well, he said, uh, you know, the topic Brother Schmuel gave you is ingenious. It's beautiful. It's powerful. He said, but considering who's going to speak tonight, you better stay with Brother Sankey's suggestion and leave it open-ended. But what I'm going to do is, like the preacher in West Virginia who said he didn't preach doctrine or nothing and accomplish both goals, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to try to accomplish both goals. I'm going to tackle this big subject, but I'm going to broaden it just a little bit and try to cover something that's really on my heart. I suppose the convention preaching ought to offer the finest 
and homiletical craftsmanship. But I want to tell you right off tonight without any apology that my remarks will not follow the well-organized flow of a homiletician, but rather they will flow from a full heart. And so they could be a little scattered, but I'm resting in the anointing of the Lord to pull them together. I come to you tonight not with the wisdom of this world, not with a lot of gray hair, a lot of answers. I don't come with a sense of, I've got the answer and I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm not coming to, to chasten you or to whip you about our failures, and we could talk a lot of time about that, and I'm going to address it. But I'm coming to answer basically three questions. Where we are in relation to our culture, what is the answer in reaching our day, and how are we going to do it? How can it be done? Those questions are big. They're bold. But the Lord has been blessing my heart as I pace the floor of my study. And tonight I'm going to share with you what he has laid on my heart. In two places of Scripture, Paul was talking first to the Ephesian church when he described what culture always is when he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then he told the Colossian church this. He said, but having nailed or having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. The culture, the Christ of the cross. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee tonight for the privilege that You have given us in sharing Thy truth. We pray that Thou will speak to our hearts in this convention. We pray that You will anoint Your servant tonight. I have not come here for fame or fortune. I have not come here for any other reason than to share the burden that You've laid on my heart. And I ask for Your anointing. I can stand here with the confidence that my motives before you are pure. My intent is to glorify the name of God and to build up thy kingdom. And I can ask you in confidence to bless and anoint your servant. And I also ask that you would bless the ears of these people that they might can hear. Give them a heart that is open to truth, a will that readily responds and will say, Yes, Lord. And whatever is accomplished, let fruit be born that would glorify your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most notable features of the evangelical movement in the last 20 years has been the recovery of its mislaid social conscience. For over 50 years, those of us who are referred to as evangelicals, we've concentrated a great deal on just defending the historical faith from liberal theology, a job that really hasn't been finished. But there seems, to have, there seems to have been a change in our approach. In the last 20 years, we have suddenly discovered that we as Wesleyans and we as evangelicals, we do have a social conscience. It is important that we reach those outside the walls of the church. It seems that many are now joining with the Master on a two-legged gospel of personal involvement and compassionate ministry. Focus on the family, prison fellowship, operation rescue, Eagle Forum, and others all have surfaced within the last 20 years to run and be at the forefront of the cultural war that we're in. And each of them are dispensing their own brand of medicine for a society that is sick in its soul. We haven't been very involved, but I do want to mention FEA and its mobile chapels under the direction of Brother Rife have made an impact on the Spanish culture in their area. George Schaefer and his mobile kitchen that goes out and feeds then preaches has made an impact on the society of those in the drug culture and in alcohol. The rescue mission at Barberton has been in operation for years, but even the Brotherhood newsletter in its own way is making an impact on the social conscience of our day. But by and large, the Holiness Church has taken a passive role. 
We've been basically an onlooker. Right now, we are still evaluating. We're poised in the position of just about ready to do something, but not quite. We're testing the wind to see if we can make a move without threatening our own little religious world. I don't say this unkindly or with sarcasm. I understand all too well the dilemma that holds us firmly in place. I believe as a people we are honestly struggling to know how to apply the biblical revelation to the pressing issues of our day. As a people, we have a deep commitment to Scripture. I know of no other movement such as ours that is committed to all of Scripture. At the same time, we are equally committed to the command that says we must be salt and light. But our commitments often seem to be in conflict. Our teachings and views of Bible truth seem to be archaic and irrelevant to a 20th century America that has a computer vocabulary and a barbaric mentality. A day that maps the universe with accuracy but can't find its way to the heart of man's spiritual needs. Things that are so important to us seem to pale into insignificance alongside the needs of a culture that kills its unborn and markets the remains for a profit. We feel a strong tension between these two worlds. We want to help, but we don't want to compromise. We panic a little when we open our doors in an all-inclusive evangelistic outreach, for we fear what may come into the church. We're much more comfortable with a selective, exclusive approach to outreach. It keeps our religious blood pressure a little more at normal levels. At the heart of this, really, at the heart of all of this, we really fear the kind of decisions we're going to have to make when we open our doors to those that are out there. I thought that the Lord had cleansed me of a great deal of this sense of, of, of fear and, and exclusiveness. Until not long ago, a few months back, we had a family in our Christian day school. They were not holiness people, but their house burnt. They had no place to go. They had moved into another little trailer and they had to be out of that by the next day and they turned to us and our principal said, well, of course, you can move on our campground and live in the worker's cottage. That's what you do to people in need, isn't it? Isn't that the Christian thing? They called me and asked me about it. I said, I'll vote for that. That's the Christian thing to do. We want to be the Good Samaritan. Well, I was loading my car, leaving for some place when they began to unload theirs. And about the first thing I saw, I saw coming out of that car was a huge television set going into that uh, apartment being carried by a woman in a pair of britches with earrings on. I literally panicked. I said, dear Lord, this is holy ground. That's a holy building. What in the world are we doing? And the Lord quickly answered back, you hypocrite. What'd you expect, a nun? What did you expect? These are people of the world. These are people you're reaching out to help. A pastor called me on one occasion from one of our churches that was really making some strides in growth and changing lives. And he said, I've got a situation on my hand. I have a couple. They've been wonderfully saved. I said, well, hallelujah. He said, they want to join the church. Anybody know that feeling around here? They want to join the church. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, there's some divorce in their background. What do you think I ought to do? I had an unmarried couple living together, been living together for years. I pastored them at Selma. They were at my altar on more than one occasion, crying their eyes out, seeking the Lord. And I had him look up at me on more than one occasion. He said, preacher, I know what I'd have to do. And instead of moving in and helping him with that situation, I backed off. And I said, just mind God, brother, just mind God. A pregnant teenager kneeling at the altar, out of wedlock, looking up at the pastor saying, is there a place for me here among you? Well, uh, uh, 
Just mind God, sister. An unwed white woman with two black children needing a good church, needing someone to take her in. Hello? You still there? I had some church people tell me, you can't do that. That is profaning the house of God. One of our pastors called and said, I got a bus kid with, he's positive for HIV. You talking about panic. Well, you know, after all, preacher, how much are we, uh, how, how much are, is really getting done with these nasty kids anyway? You know, we better rethink this. That kind of mentality has breeded a segment of holiness people that have completely ignored the challenges of a modern world. And they're living in the security of their own exclusive religious ghetto. They retreat into their subcultures, their comfort zones, and they ban anybody that doesn't fit their mold and mindset. Their evangelization is highly selective. They do not want to risk making decisions that make them appear to be unsympathetic on one hand or worldly on the other. They simplify their problems by making the test of true salvation the immediate adoption of the present dress code. This kind of thinking has bred isolation, intellectual polarization, and sometimes cultish behavior. Furthermore, it creates an atmosphere that is attractive to people who are non-functional societal dropouts, further strengthening the entrenchment mentality. On the other hand, we have those who are anxious to respond to the challenge of the day with an anything-goes approach. They are quick to trim and twist Scripture to make it fit their need for relevance. They are first in line to adopt whatever new idea comes down the pike, offering sure growth. They are quick to argue against traditional disciplines, outdated methods of preaching, and denominational names on the signs, and anything else that conventional wisdom says might impede progress. They want a service that appeals to the prevalent consumer mentality. They offer personalized religion. They want to address emotional needs, lift up fallen self-esteems, deal with the causes of depression while never addressing biblical Christianity. They inadvertently seek a cultural approach to religion, one that is palatable to the new church goer who according to Newsweek and Gallup's poll and George Barna they, that wants support rather than salvation. They want help rather than holiness. And they want the assurance that self-affirmation is on the top of any religious agenda. John Stott expresses this two-horned dilemma well when he said, it's very easy to be faithful if you aren't interested in being contemporary. And it's very easy to be contemporary if you aren't interested in being faithful. I believe as Christians, however, we are not at liberty to surrender either to antiquity or to modernity. Both lead down the road of irrelevance and uselessness, one through isolation, the other through secularization. To follow the path of the former will leave a generation of young people that are bitter, that are confused, and will reject the system entirely. Follow the latter way will amass a group of Bible-toting zealots who don't even know what it means to be saved. Neither course will affect our culture. It's my firm conviction that the majority of mainstream conservative holiness people aren't really found in either of these extremes. At least they don't want to be on either side. The minority noisemakers confuse us as to who we are where we ought to be and where we ought to go. But I firmly believe that the majority of our people are still solid, sensible, sanctified people who are standing on the razor-thin edge of middle ground desperately wanting to advance the cause of God while preserving Bible-centered lifestyles. But unfortunately, they're a silent majority. They don't write articles. They don't preach at conventions. 
but they're the ones holding it all together and paying the bills. They want to be involved with reaching out. They want to be active as salt and light in their community. I've yet to meet those, well, I take that back, the majority that I meet are really frustrated with our impotence. They really <coughs> want to do something. But their zeal to carry out the Great Commission at home is often thwarted or intimidated by the heckling cries of a senseless sand ballot who has his own agenda. One who knows just the right words to throw out to freeze a sensitive soul in their tracks. Compromiser. Letting the world in. Getting carried away with numbers. Adultery church. Though they never offer any constructive solutions, they're just always there, wringing it out that we're all going to hell in a handbasket. It's just a matter of time. There are others, though, that aren't intimidated by these ploys, yet they are turned off by the shallowness of the church growth movement and its resultant worldliness. They look at those who talk outreach the most, and they see their hair trimmed, and they wear gauchos and all the other facial embellishments and other questionable activity, and they're turned off by that, so they just turn inward. They hold on to their little handful and they pray for revival. What this has created over our movement is a basic stalemate, a frustration to do something on the other hand, yet a fear if we do, we'll end up like them. And so here we are. And so while we're sit here, the average holiness church has a growth rate of a minus 5%. There's not a denominational leader here tonight who hasn't wrung his hands over the fact his membership statistics are going down year after year after year. And he doesn't know what to do about it. And the thicker you make your manuals, the quicker they go down. And the thinner you make them, they're still going down. Francis Schaeffer said, when a movement gets caught up with its own preservation, it means certain death. And only when you're caught up in penetrating this world will there ever be life to a movement. I've had young people ask me, why do you think so many of our finest young men are jumping the fence? They just want an easier way, don't they? Some of them do. But I believe a good number of them are frustrated with our emptiness and our barrenness. You, dress, you require the people to dress up like we dress up and then parade them around empty and void of the glory and power of God. It's the most nauseating thing on the face of the earth. It is. But you take a man or a woman and wrap them in Bible standards and Bible principles, and you fill them with the presence of God and the glory of God, and friends, it's the most attractive thing in the world. The most attractive thing in the world. And it never turns anybody off. It always becomes a sense of attraction, something they know they need and they want. While all of this is happening, Providence has placed us at one of the most momentous periods of evangelistic outreach. Get your head out of the sand for a while. Look about you. You and I are placed in a moment in history that there's never been one like it, never before. The door to missionary activity is wider than it's ever been. But it's also the same right here in our own country. But our movement, our movement is paralyzed from an identity crisis. We don't know who we are. We don't. We don't know who we are. We don't know if our come out roots make us a protesting movement. We're just born to protest. 
just born to stand against. That's a comfortable position for some to be in. It requires no thinking, no difficult decisions, no work. Just look right and pay your tithe. And you can be on anybody's board. On the other hand, we get troubled occasionally when we are invoked with visions of the circuit riders and our Methodist background of Wesley and, and Asbury and those great giants as they crisscross our country reaching out with a burning heart. We get troubled by that occasionally and decide, well, we better do something. And we get all stirred up and we feel, well, we're, our roots are in evangelism and it's in revivalism. But we're not sure which one. We're like the little girl who, on her way to school, lost her birth certificate. And when she got to the door, she realized it was gone, and she started crying. The janitor said, what are you weeping about? She said, oh, sir, I've lost my reason for being born. I've got a feeling some of us don't know why we were born. We don't know why we exist as a movement. Our sole purpose for existence is simply not to protest worldliness and maintain a standard. Though don't be so foolish as to think that's not a part of it. It is. But who in the world ever came along and said it's an either-or situation? Who is the man that said that? Where is he? Who told us that we had to be polarized in our thinking? Who said it was either or? We either have to be a protesting movement or just throw that all away and become an evangelistic movement. It's not an either or situation. It can be a fine blend of both. Read after men who've tried both roads. Look at those who pursued the church growth movement to its very hilt. They just, many of those leaders have written in this very issue of Leadership Magazine, and their cries are this, we better get back to basics. We better get back to the Scripture. We better get a church that is a holy community and start working from that framework. We just filled our churches with whirlings if we don't. On the other hand, we've given perfect proof of what a protesting mindset will produce. Yet, we go right along, shouting at the conventions, shaking hands, and this is how we excuse it. We say, well, you know, we, we compensate. We say, well, after all, nobody really wants to go this way. But privately, we confess our failure, we agonize over our losses, we wring our hands over the future of the movement, and we're scared to death we're going to lose our families. This lack of identity breeds confusion. I don't know if any of you move among your young people or not, but if you want to move among some young people that want to serve God more than anything else, just start moving across some of the young people in the holiness movement. But on the other hand, you'll find a lot of young people that really don't know what they're about, what they believe, where they stand, or why. This kind of confusion strips the church of its certainty and its authoritative preaching. And when we have no certain sound to give, we are plagued with a decline in commitment. We have a lot of second-guessing going on, and many important values are tagged as non-essential when we do not have an authoritative message. And all the while, the minority extremes among us continue to run their presses and shout from the pulpit in alternate turns, worldly, legalist, Betrayer, hypocrite, apostate, apathetic, compromiser, cultish, do-nothinger, do-everythinger. And while we're standing on the grandstands and listening to all of this babble that goes back and forth among a minority group, a minority sect in our movement, here we sit in the middle. What in the world are we going to do about it? Where in the world are we going to somehow get off of dead zero and begin to make some advances? Where are we going to climb out of our, our malaise and get out of our apathy and our bewilderment and our confusion? What, how are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? 
What are we going to do? Dare I be so bold? Some of you think I've already been pretty bold. Dare I be so bold? Dare I be so simple as to say there is an answer? There's an answer. Brother, if you're on the crowd that's circling its wagons and just going to hold on to what you've got, I'm not, that's not my crowd. This is our day, and that's not a cliche. This is our day. This is our moment, and we can seize it for God and for holiness. What are we going to do? After being elected general secretary of our missions department, I went traipsing over the, to the Philippines with a high sounding, some high-sounding sermons and a Bible full of answers to all of their problems to tell them how to build their churches. And they're already grow, outgrowing us about two to one. And I marched in there going to tell them, now, boys, this is how you do it. And all of a sudden, they began to tell me. They began to tell me how many churches they'd started that year and how many they had projected to win, how many souls they'd planned on winning, how many baptized, and how many new members they were going to have in the next five years. I hadn't heard talk like that. I said, well, what in the world? Thomas Gollum came up, came up to me, and he began to tell me how I said, Thomas, you have built three strong indigenous churches, never taking a dime of American money. How in the world do you do it? He says, very simple. He said, we recognize that we're not fighting against humans. It's not a carnal warfare. We're fighting against forces of darkness. He said, so the first thing we do, we start praying. I said, well, that sounds sensible. I wish I'd have thought of that. He said, but when we pray, preacher, we pray every Friday night. I said, well, I've been in a few all-night prayer meetings. They started at 8 and ended at 9. What about yours? He said, we start at 7 o'clock and we pray all night long till 7 the next morning, every Friday night. Now, I know we've kind of lost that emphasis and that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound popular anymore. It doesn't sound very, uh, uh, it's not palatable, but the bottom line is here's a man that says this is how it's done. He said, we pray all night, every Friday night from 7 to 7. And then after we pray, he said, since folks don't just come walking into the church, we go where they are. The Catholics were having a bingo party, and I asked them, could I preach to them? And they said, when the gambling's done, you can. And he did, and he won 13 Catholics that very night. He said, my rice farmers, he said, they get up so early and, and work all day that I can't visit at night. He said, they sleep, so I prayed. The Lord said, get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, be it knocking on their doors at 2.30. And he said, witness to them. He did. And the rice farmers started getting saved. What do you tell them? He said, we preach Christ. Now, that's a new subject, new thought to some of us. But you know, the Bible even gives that answer. History confirms it, that there is an answer to a growing church. We can grow. We can grow. We can meet our culture head on and accomplish something for Christ. What is that answer? The Bible gives us a portrait of this in Numbers 23, 21. Don't turn. It's so short I'm going to quote it. Israel is marching into the land of Canaan, the promised land. This glorious place that flows with milk and honey. Yet who just happened to be occupied with the most wicked people on the face of the earth. It was a land of unsurpassed iniquity. And their job was to go in and possess the land. And as they were marching in, they were resting in the plains of Moab. Balak had heard about their coming and he had already hired a soothsayer to come over and curse these people. And so while Israel is sprawled in the plains of Moab, Balak is banding about his hireling prophet Balaam up on the stormy crags above him in the mountains. And they're going from place to place and saying, all right now, Balaam, offer your sacrifices. Do what you need to do, but stop these people. Curse them, curse them. He tried once and bless them. He tried twice and bless them. And Balak was getting disturbed. He said, look, I'm paying you good silver. I'm paying you good gold. I said, stop them. And the prince of darkness was greatly distressed uh, as he moved about in the mounts above the people of God that nothing seemed to be working and halting their advance. 
And finally the third time came around and Balaam offered, Balaam offered the sacrifices and he walked away a little bit when he came back. He said, I want to tell you something, Balak. It's no use. You can't curse what God's blessed. You can't stop the people of God who have His anointing, who have His presence. And he turned and he said these words. This is what he said. He said, the reason you can't stop these people is that the Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. And he said, you can't stop them. You can't stop these kind of folk. The Lord their God was with them, and the shout of a king was among them. What did Balaam inadvertently say? He simply said uh, that among these people is the presence of God, uh, and among these people uh, is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, and there is no way I can stop them. And he gave us a twofold secret to how any church that wants to move and wants to grow can grow and move. And what's good for a church is good for a movement and good for a convention. He said those two elements are imperative. First he said there must be the divine presence. There must be the divine presence among them. You and I can work ourselves uh, until we're sick. Uh, we can work ourselves until we're almost backslidden uh, with weariness. Uh, we can do everything in the world, try every game in the world, and walk away with broken nerves uh, in absolute frustration. Uh, if we do not have God in our midst, that is the secret. And they had God. When God was there, nothing could stop them. It has been the key. Israel was the Israel of God. When the Lord their God was with them, and when He was with them, they were invincible. Friends, it's been the secret to the past. We like to look on our rosy past as wonderful days that we wish we could go back to. They weren't near as rosy as we sometimes think they are. But the great moves of God that we did see in the past, all of them were marked by the presence of the divine. That was the secret. That was the secret. When Jonathan Edwards stood in his nearsightedness and read his sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God, there was so much God in that church until people trembled and they shook and they wept and they held to the pews to keep from falling into hell itself. When George Whitfield preached in Philadelphia on Market Street, he was heard by 25,000 people and Ben Franklin said the effects of that man's preaching would close the, the dens of iniquity for nine after nine after nine and instead of hearing the songs of wickedness you would hear them singing psalms in the streets of Philadelphia Ben Franklin said he didn't convert me but I love to go watch that man burn I love to go watch him burn as he preached that is the secret that's the secret that was the secret to French. That was the secret to Flexen. That was the secret to Tim Anderson. They were not great orators. They were not great homileticians. But these were men that lived in the presence of God. And because they lived in God's presence, they became leaders to our movement, fathers of our movement. That was the key to our past. But let me tell you something. It's the key to the present. Sure it is. You say nobody's doing anything. Oh, yes, they are. Oh, yes, they are. There's a little church in the back roads of Alabama, a little church called Active. It usually ran about four in prayer meeting and 12 on Sunday morning and did so consistently year after year after year after year. And then a little backwoods preacher who never went to Bible school, a boy by the name of Kurt Littleton went there. He didn't know all about the church growth techniques. He told me, he said, I don't understand all this stuff. He said, I just have to pray. I'm not belittling education, okay? I'm saying, he said, I don't understand all this. He said, but I just have to pray. And he prayed, he did. He prayed. And that boy would stay on his face before God until when he came up from the place of prayer, he would march to his pulpit and preach like a machine. I mean preach intellectual sermons and powerful messages that God gave them with the anointing on his soul. And all of a sudden, people began to get converted. 
And that little church that ran 12 started running 20, then 25, then 30, then 35, then 40, then 45, then 50, then 55, then 60, then 65, then hitting 70, and they're still going. You say, it must be a compromise. No, I'd like for some of you to look at them. They look more conservative than some of you. Good people. Steve Parker went into the college town of Tuscaloosa, nothing but a handful of old folks. The church had dwindled to nothing. He went into that situation, and he became angry over what he saw. And he got alone with God and started praying. I mean praying every morning for an hour and two hours. And he began to pray and he began to preach. Right now, they've, they don't have room for anybody else. They're running over 100. People are coming to hear the anointed preaching of the Word. There's a man on this platform who pastors a church that for a number of years was just a status quo church. But I remember when Danny Stetler began to sort of get serious about pastoring. I was a student at God's Bible School. I remember the morning you came and you stood in that pulpit and you said, God's been talking to me about prayer. He wants me to get up when my men are getting up to go to work about five o'clock and spend that extra time in prayer. And all of a sudden he began to cultivate a devotional life, a life that was alone with God. And all of a sudden that man's ministry began to blossom and he began to preach with power and anointing and unction. And people from miles around just drive in to get under the sound of solid, sane, anointed preaching. And the church is running over a hundred. Make your way to Indiana. There's a young boy I love dearly by the name of Mark Cravens who stepped into a situation at Summitville, a strong church. But there's a boy whose heart loved God more than anything else. And he began to cry and to be broken and to bleed. And he's taking his church to higher heights. And men and women are being saved on a regular basis. And there's anointed preaching. And God visits the services. And they're growing. Skip over to a little place in Pennsylvania. There's a guy by the name of Mike Hobbs uh, who's under the anointed ministry and the preaching of the Word of God is building a church. I want to tell you something, friends. Wherever you want to go, wherever you want to go, there are those who are decided to build a church as God would have them build a church and they're praying and they're getting a hold of God and they're going to their pulpits with power and anointing and they're building their church. It's the answer to our future. This alone will make us the people of God. This alone, the presence of God alone will build our churches. Try, if you will, every technique you want. They'll put you on the junk pile of burnout preachers in the end. Try it. But if you'll try the right one, if you'll get God in your services and on your soul and on your ministry. But not only was it the presence of God, he said, the Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. It was the power of the cross, the shout of a king, the shout of a king. Who can read along with the apostle Paul when Paul said, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it without hearing the shout of a king. Who can read with Paul when he said, he leads me daily in his triumphant march without hearing the shout of the king. Who can go, not go back to Calvary where that first left the, the first shout left the royal lips of the son of God when he cried out it's finished and that shout began to reverberate across the centuries of time and it broke out again and again it broke out by a Francis it broke out with a Luther it broke out with a Wesley and all of those men gave their, the church back its soul we need a man that will rise to the forefront we need pastors we need leaders who will hear the shout of the king who will fall in line behind the triumphant work of the cross of Jesus Christ and will say, I too shall march in his triumphant train. I shall follow him. The early church took up that shout. They said, Christ Jesus reigns as the martyrs went down to the stake in flames. 
They were shouting the message, Christ reigns, Christ is triumphant. And that shout was passed on and on and on and on again. And I want you to know something. The shout of the king, not Ronald Reagan or any other politician, but the shout of the king knocked over the iron wall and is now sweeping its way across Eastern Europe. The shout of the king has been heard in the Asian community and in the little country of Taiwan. It's beginning to shake the ground on which they live and God's raising up a family of Christians so that when the shout of the king tears down the bamboo curtain, and, uh, that group of Christians will flood in uh, to China and once again the shout of the king uh, will be heard across the plains of China the shout of the king uh, the shout of the king uh, the shout of the king uh, has been heard across the ASEAN community uh, it's moving down into Papua New Guinea and it broke out with revival it's sweeping down toward Australia I know, I know it's pretty quiet I know it's pretty quiet on our shores I know that America has sodomized herself I know that America's calling good what God calls evil and calling evil what God calls good. I know all of that too well. I've heard everything they've had to say about the whole business. But I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. If this book is true, if this book is true, you and I can get on our face before God, confess our sin of apathy, confess our faithlessness, uh, humble ourselves before God, uh, and once again, take up the shout of the King. And that very shout uh, will reverberate across uh, the fruited plain. Uh, it'll make its way across the flatlands of Indiana, the rolling hills of Ohio, to the Alleghenies of New York, down the eastern shore, and across the heart of Dixie with greater power than Sherman's Raiders ever had and leave behind the burnt rubbish piles of the dens of iniquity. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Amen. I want to take up that shout. I want to be a part of those that believe it. That believe it. Christ reigns. He's spoiled powers and principalities. He's put them to shame openly. Brother, Every man that decides to join in on his side is assured of triumph and victory and glory. Hallelujah. Well, in the world are we going to get there? Well, I should have quit while you were shouting. But how are we going to get there? We're going to get there through leadership. The greatest the greatest need in the holiness movement is leadership. No need that's anywhere near closer to that need. That's the greatest need. I know I'm on shaky ground. Dear Lord, help me. But I want to tell you something. The leadership across the holiness movement, you need to square your shoulders Get out of your comfort zones. Quit running half scared to death. Stand on your feet. Put an end to some of this nonsense and division. Some of these foolish tricks and ploys that are being played. Stifle some of this minority criticism. Get out there and encourage uh, your pastors. Uh, get their heads up. Get their heads up. Get their heads up. Uh, they're discouraged. They're browbeat. They've had it with a lot of these problems. They need somebody to lead the way. And if you'll lead the way, give them their confidence back in the Word of God. Tell them that Jesus reigns. And if they'll preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified with the anointing of the Holy Ghost, it will convert our culture. Hallelujah. It will. You're the men to do it. I love the man sitting there with a striped tie, V.O. Hagen. The only reason I'm here is his ministry, his life. Brother Hagen, I remember when you would stand in front of us years ago, back many years ago, I remember you standing up and you said, boys, the world's in a mess. It's in trouble. But I want to tell you something, fellas. We've got the answer. We've got the answer. Now, boys, there's a job to do. We're the men to do it. Let's go. Let's go. Hey, we're the men to do it. I guarantee you nobody else is going to do it for us. 
Nobody else. If you know if you aren't willing to lead, get out of the way and let somebody else do it. Stand up, square your shoulders. I just read what some of the prominent leaders in the evangelical movement said, what we were going to have to do to take our culture back. You'd be interested to hear them. You'd be interested. They said we're going to have to once again get our discernment back. They said we're going to have to return to the timeless emphasis of the Word of God. They said we're going to have to be salt and light in a powerful way. We're going to have to proclaim, not protest. We're going to have to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. We're going to have to get more exposition and less entertainment. And we're going to have to focus on one thing, target it, and go after it with all of our might. And then we might change things again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do in revivals and in camp meetings and evangelistic services. I'm going to follow in the triumphant train of the risen Savior. I'm going to take up His shout. I'm going to, I'm going to begin to teach and to preach the emphasis of this book. I'm going to proclaim them loud and clear. And while I'm doing that on one hand, one hand, I'm going to be faithful to teach and to catechize those young ones that are coming behind me in a biblical-oriented lifestyle and in scriptural standards. I'm going to, I want to accomplish both. I wonder who wants to go along. Who wants to take our culture back? Who wants once again to see the glory restored to our movement and our churches once again being filled Oh, not with a bang, not with a bang, but gradually, gradually see them fill. Growth began. Well, if that's the case, let it be said of us, the Lord their God is with them, and the shout of the King is among them. God bless you. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. That has been passed. I don't want-